Good to be with you. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know not all of you have a Bible. I need to turn mine right side up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. Okay, it's after the four books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, Romans, and then comes 1 Corinthians. I want you to go to chapter 7. Okay? Chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband Uh, does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift of God, one of one kind, and one of another. That's the word of God tonight. You might be thinking, Tanner, I know we're going through this series uh, called Alone Together on the One Another's, but why this one another, right? You've got 52 that you could pick from. Why the one about marriage and sex? Why? Well, because I don't just want to teach where you're at. I also want to teach where you're going to be headed in life, most likely. You see, as I reflect back on college and I look at... Uh, my classmates, as I look at people that I went through college ministry with, I look at, and not, it wouldn't be fair to say it with a broad brush, but it would be fair to say a lot of those people are either one struggling in marriage or two have great misconceptions about what the Word of God says about marriage. Okay? So I realize not all of you are married. In fact, very few of you are married. Some of you are dating, some of you are engaged, but the Word of God has answers into this aspect of marriage, dating, engagement. Sex, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I want you, going forward from here, to have an accurate, biblical, full view of marriage and sexuality. Human sexuality worldview, by the way, it's a constant barrage, isn't it? Whether you want to or not, this is in front of us, day in and day out. Modern media has made it almost impossible, nearly impossible to seclude ourselves, to put away the barrage of images, ideas, sounds, thoughts that are in front of us constantly. It's crucial as Christians, listen, it's crucial that we as Christians have a voice in this matter. It's crucial that we have a voice in sexuality because, quite frankly, God created man and woman, and God created us as sexual beings. So this whole idea of human sexuality, this is God's ground. This is God's territory. And his word is not short on things to say about this. Hugh Hefner did not invent sex. Hollywood did not invent sex. God invented sex. And it's a good thing. If that makes you uncomfortable, then I I know as I talk publicly about this, I kind of toe a fine line. uh, Because we, you know, I've been to stuff, I've been to talks, uh, public events, even Christian stuff that sometimes leaves me a little bit uneasy. Sometimes it's less helpful than it is more helpful because it tempts me more. So I know I toe a fine line, but I want to be honest and frank, and I hope it's helpful. Because, th- again, this is God's territory. This is God's ground. We must 
friends, take back this ground in sexuality, not by storming the gates of teasers, not by some crusader effort, some wild thing, but by ascribing, prescribing, by knowing and applying the Word of God and what it says about sex and marriage. This is important, isn't it? I don't want to cause you to stumble, but I do want to be honest with you. And I know the, the number of things that you're exposed to daily, weekly, week in and week out. I know sometimes as a married person, in my experience, married people can just be less sensitive here. I remember going to stuff for married people when I was a single. Why was I doing that? I don't know. But I, if it was a married person <laughs> talking, sometimes he's talking about all this stuff because he's doing it or she's doing it. And like as a single person, I'm like, whoa. And uh, I get that because I'm actively engaged in marriage and sex and all these things. And so it's normal for me to talk about, to think about, to do these things. But for many of you, it's not. But I do want to know what, I do want you to know what the Word of God says about this. This is so important. Are you with me? This is so important because whether you want to or not, the world is speaking into this. You have a worldview on sex. You have a worldview on marriage. And if it's not what the Bible's is, I want to ask you to to take out the hard drive and to just for an, erase it. I want to suggest that you would just erase what the media has told you about sex and that you would weigh it, at least weigh it. If you're thinking, what is this stuff about the Bible and Jesus and sex and marriage? If you're skeptical, at least weigh it against tonight. If you're convinced, take it out, delete it, and let's replace it with what the Word of God says. Amen? Man, this is good, good ground for us to cover. And depending on where you've come from, <laughs> you, you might have a variety of different uh, education background in this. I know most of my education early on came from public school. To be honest, red light, green light is just not that helpful. Uh, the stop signs, I don't know about you, but when my teacher was talking about this, I was thinking, ew, you're my teacher. Like, why are you talking about this? And why are you showing this prehistoric film the guys are still in short shorts. Is this the 70s? Why are we? I mean, this is just way outdated. So it wasn't very helpful for me. Okay, so tonight, no diagrams, no video clips. Uh, but we're going to rewrite the hard drive, if you will. The Bible has a better way. The Bible has a better way. In fact, in fact, the Bible has a whole book on marriage and sexuality, doesn't it? Right? God's Word has things to say about this. And I want you to know what God's Word says about it. Friends, this is unashamedly, unashamedly God's territory. You think this matters to God? You bet it does. You bet it matters to God. And so it should, what? It should matter to us, shouldn't it? If it matters to God, it should matter to us. And so look back with me at 1 Corinthians 7. It says, Now considering the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul's probably, Paul's the author here, by the way. We talked about Paul last week, right? Went from Jesus hater to Jesus worshiper. I'm not going to review all that again, but Paul wrote half the New Testament. He's writing here again. And what Paul's doing right away here, he's probably quoting from a letter he got from the Corinthians. Okay, so Paul's in Ephesus, a town named Ephesus, after his third missionary journey. He's about to write to the Corinthians, and he's doing that. He's writing, he's writing, but as he's writing, he gets a letter from them. Okay, so he completes what the first six chapters are in Corinthians. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1, marks a transition. Before he's confronting things he's heard about, he gets a report from Chloe, 
And uh, he's just saying, I heard that this is happening. I want you to deal with this. I want you to deal with this. Now he says, concerning the things you wrote, and he probably quotes here, it's good not for, a man, or for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And in the Corinthians letter, it probably ranged a wide variety of topics. Okay? Can you confront spiritual, gift and, uh, spiritual gifts and women in the church and, and the Lord's Supper and all these different things? But you can bet that a lot of it had to deal with marriage remarriage, sexuality, all these things. Why? Because they were curious. They didn't know. It's not that different today, is it? We are curious about these things. We want answers. And the Word of God has it. Okay, Their culture, it's important to understand as we think about the Corinth culture, it was a, let me tell you, a perverse culture. Like, really perverse. How perverse? Well, the perversity of the Roman culture in first century was appalling by anyone's standards. Okay? Uh, there was a, a temple up on a hill in Corinth. Uh, I'm trying to find Aphrodite's was her name, the Temple of Aphrodite's. And there was a thousand female prostitutes at the temple. They were sex slaves. And before you entered into the temple, you had to have sex with one of these prostitutes. And they would come down from the temple at night into the streets. Can you imagine if this was in Bozeman, by the way? No, son, you can't go downtown after 6 p.m. Why? Well, you can't. I'll explain when you're older. Can you imagine? This was like a perverse culture. There was a large and, and flamboyant feminist movement at the beginning of the, or towards the end of the first century. Childless marriages were very common. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, I was reading, I was reading a, a, from a guy named uh, Juvenal. He lived 60 uh, just before the, the uh, BC, just before Jesus was born, and he lived till after, and he's writing at this time period. And he says that the women wore out their wedding veils with so many marriages. Gender lines were being blurred. Wedding veils were getting worn out. There's reports of people being married 20, even 30 times. So I just want you to get a picture into what Paul is speaking into and writing into. In fact, this same poet, he talks about, he says, uh, the women were competing in the gender roles, and there's women, bare-breasted women going out and hunting and spearing pigs. That was a sport. Now, I don't know how you're hoping to meet your future wife or husband, but that's not how Brooke and I met, okay? <laughs> I wasn't pig hunting. And that's not how we got hooked up. That was going on at the time. This is a perverse culture. Some of your versions here in this verse say not to touch a woman. Okay? It's a hard thing to understand. It's a Jewish euphemism, and it means to have intercourse. So Paul says this, it's good for a single man not to have intercourse. It's good for a single man not to have sex. Basically, he's saying singleness is a good thing. It's a good thing. I'll explain why, why he needed to say that to the, to the Gentiles, to the, to the people at Corinth. But for Jews, this was important too, because by the way, this was a big deal for Jews. They had seven things that you needed to get into heaven. You know what the first one was? You've got to be married. You've got to be married. And so Paul says, it's okay not to be married. In fact, it's good to be single. A very basic concept here he outlines for us. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Well, I grew up hearing that. But that's a real concept. Celibacy, refraining from sex outside of marriage. Paul says it's not just okay. He says it's a good thing. It's a good thing to do. Singleness at large is a good thing. But notice he doesn't say that marriage is bad. He's careful not to say that. In fact, look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, 
and each woman her own husband. You could understand why if we look at the culture today or if we look at the culture back then, sexual immorality was rampant. He says because of that, it's good to have a wife. It's good to have a husband. Sexual desire is a healthy thing, but because of sin, listen, it's been twisted. It's been messed up. And the Corinth people, because of this, they had a low view of marriage. A really low view of marriage. And so Paul says, no, marriage is a good thing. In fact, there's four types of marriage at the time. There was slave marriage. Many of the first century Christians were slaves, by the way. And so it's tent marriage. The slave owner would just say, okay, you can live in the same tent. You can be married. There was what we would refer to today as common law marriage, where if two people live together long enough, you can get married. Okay? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, there was uh, an auction type of marriage where fathers would auction off their, their daughters for a certain price. And then there was a more royal type of marriage, which, by the way, we could say is the great, 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 great grandfather of the type of marriage we have today. At a big celebration, they even put the, the ring on the third finger of the left hand. They even had, get this, a cake. So there was four types of marriage, and this really complicated things. Well, if, you know, if someone leaves from this type of marriage or this type, what is this? And the Corinthians just said, forget about it. We don't want to get married. This is too much to understand. But Paul says, no, because of sexual temptation, this is a good thing. Some had the idea that celibacy was altogether more spiritual. It was better. And so they'd lobbied for that. And so in the sexual chaos that was happening, marriage had got lost. It had become complicated and blurred. And isn't this, to be honest, isn't this how Christians as we can be often? Yeah, that just seems really complicated and really complex. I just don't want to really deal with that. I think singleness is a lot better. And this how we as Christians can be. Paul said, by the way, later in a different book in 1 Timothy 4.3, he talked about false teachers who would come in the last times. He said this about them, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, People come, and even Christians can say, you know, singleness, that's the thing, right? Like, that's the place. And if I were to be honest with you, I'm not proud of this, but I've been there. Okay? I was a part of the HMWHC, okay? The He-Man Woman Haters Club in college, okay? I was one of those silly bachelor to the rapture kind of guys. I'm not proud of it, but we were there, weren't we? The irony is that I think four out of the five guys in that club got married within a year and a half, but that's history, okay? That's where I was. I want you to notice something else. Paul was very careful not to elevate one gender above the other. You're going to see that throughout the text here. It's a radical idea at the time. First century Roman world, men were on top. But Paul is very careful to keep an equal playing field. Different roles, you bet. But he says each woman should have her own husband. Each Each man should have his own wife. Because of sexual sin, he says, it's better to be married. And we see this idea today, don't we, in religion? Think about the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, They would say that celibacy, that's the thing. Like, that's it, right? If you're really holy, you want to wear a wedding wing, but you're going to be married to Jesus. You can be set apart. What happens with that so often? It's tragic, isn't it? Sexual temptation is so strong, and it enters in, and it perverts the whole thing. If you know anything about some of the intricacies of the military, listen, same problem in the military. Same problem in the military. Prisons, 
It's happening in prisons. This is a huge problem. Rape, these kinds of things are happening large scale in these areas where marriage is restricted. It's not able to be practiced. Paul says, look at 1 Corinthians 7, 9. He's talking to unmarried and widows here. He says this, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should be married. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay? Paul's giving a principle here that you need to understand, that you need to think seriously about. I know he's speaking to unmarried and widows here, but if you're going to burn with passion your whole life, it's better for you to be married. But listen, marriage, marriage is not simply an out for avoiding sexual sin. It's not merely a satisfaction for the sex drive. Okay? I don't know if it is what you would do with the other 166 hours in the week with your wife or your husband. Marriage is not merely sex. Is sex important? Is it great? You bet it is. But it is, there's far more to marriage. And so Paul gives reasons throughout the Bible. God gives reasons throughout the Bible for marriage. So I want to just go through some of those with you. What is marriage? What's it about? What is it about? I have six P's. If you, if you have a sheet, if you find it useful, there's six P's that I want to go through with you about marriage. Okay, real simple, real memorable. Marriage is for procreation. Procreation. God says in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, marriage is for procreation. Obviously, one of the first commands in the Bible can't happen without sex. It can't happen without marriage. Okay, so God says, be fruitful and multiply. Be married, be fruitful and multiply. Second reason is this, pleasure. Marriage is for pleasure. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says this, Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Marriage is for pleasure. This is a really important concept for you to understand tonight. As we talk about sex and marriage, so often we just think of God as this cosmic killjoy. Like, limit marriage to, to one way. Limit, marriage, uh, limit sex to one way. God invented, He created marriage for pleasure. Third, He created it for provision. For, for, for provision. God outlines in 1 Peter 3, talks about marital roles. He talks about how a woman is a weaker vessel, not spiritually, but physically. How it can be helpful for a man to provide, not because the woman can't, but because that can be an important role for the man to fulfill. Four, it's for partnership. Partnership. Genesis 2.18. says it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helpmate suitable for him. Marriage is partnership. It's friendship. You know who my best friend is, unashamedly, without doubt? It's my wife. It's Brooke. Marriage is for partnership. Fifth, it's for a picture. You know, this is one of my favorite parts about marriage. Without question, I love that marriage is a picture. When I began to wrap my head around this, this blew my mind that marriage was so much bigger than me. In fact, I want you to go to Ephesians in your Bible. You're already in 1 Corinthians, but go to Ephesians. It's farther towards the back. First and 2 Corinthians, and then uh, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Go to chapter 5 of Ephesians. I want you to follow along with me while I read. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He Himself being the Savior of the body. But the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands and everything. 
Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. What? Say, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, isn't it? It's a great mystery. In in the Old Testament, we had no idea about this. We just knew marriage. Now God says, this mystery is great. I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. You see that marriage is a picture. It's about so much more than yourself if you're married. Your marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. That's important. That's a big role to fulfill. I have in my Bible uh, family stuff, husband, wife, child stuff is highlighted in orange, and church stuff is highlighted in purple. And I look at this section, I just think this is orple. I mean, it's just it's all mixed up because it's both, Right? It's family, but it's also church. It's such a beautiful picture. Sixth, sixth, and lastly, marriage is for purity. 1 Corinthians 7, 2, the verse we just looked at. Marriage is for purity. How does this purity thing work, you might ask? Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights or marital rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Some of your versions say, let the husband fulfill his duty. To his wife and the, and the wife, her duty to her husband. The husband has a duty. What is the duty? It's to please his wife. This word duty might be kind of striking to you like duty, obligation, debt. What's up with that? Well, it's a heavy idea of both regularity and decision here. There's a sense in which marriage and sexual relationship in marriage is a duty, not in a cumbersome sort of way, not in a Oh, I've got to do this. But there's a duty aspect to this, right? It's also reciprocal. Really, it's the same idea that we've been hitting on for the last two weeks, isn't it? Deontay taught on Philippians 2 three weeks ago. Then I taught on serve one another. That same idea regarding others more highly than themselves. Regarding their desires more highly than their own. And by the way, sex is best when you have the other person in mind. When you're in it for the other person to make them happy. That's the way God designed it. That's the way God designed much of life. And this is no different. This is certainly not just some necessary evil in marriage. It's not just something that you're obligated to do. In fact, God says what is evil in marriage is celibacy. Look, just to summarize this, sex outside of marriage is a perversion of a wonderful gift. Sex inside of marriage is an awesome and a wonderful must. It's commanded. Remember Proverbs 5.19? Rejoice, delight. Uh, as some of you probably remember in Genesis 26, Isaac and Rebekah and, and someone's looking on and it's we, different translations translated in different ways. Old King Jimmy says he was sporting with his wife. All right. He's not even sure what to do with this. He's chasing him around the camel. She, they're, just, they're flirting, they're playing around. They're having fun. And, and Isaac had told the king, by the way, that, that Rebecca was his sister. Wouldn't you be ticked off, woman, women? 
Would you be mad if your husband was like, yeah, this is my sister because I don't want to get killed. And someone's looking on and realizing, wait, that's not his sister. Because they're messing around. They're fooling around like a healthy married couple should. And so it's the church's job. Listen, it's our, it's our job to take sex back from the culture. To realize this is a beautiful gift of God for marriage. Remember, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to this. I mean, think about it. There's not a book on money. There's not a book on parenting. There's a book on marriage and sexuality. Is there parallels, by the way, to, to Christ and the church and the Song of Solomon? You bet there is. Absolutely, there's imagery there. But that's not the main thrust. The main thrust is this. Delight in the wife of your youth. Delight in your husband. By the way, if we don't talk about this, what is talking? Who is talking about this? Psych 235, human sexuality. Health 220. You know this, right? You're sitting in these classes, many of you, and you're hearing this barrage. People are speaking into your life into this. And if the Word of God isn't sitting on your heart, if it's not speaking into your life in this, watch out. You will have a warped view of marriage and sexuality, a perverted, twisted, and corrupt level that is totally warped. If that sounds harsh, I'm sorry, but I've seen what's taught. I've seen, listen, week in and week out, I'm counseling people who are dealing with the repercussions of taking the world's advice on this. Students tell me about what their teachers are bringing swingers in so they can say, don't knock it till you try it. You need to do this. No, I am going to knock it because week in and week out, I see people who have lost the battle to this and who live lives scarred and hurt by these things. God has a better way. Amen? Amen. Amen. I went to a student, I was on a student committee, by the way, when I was a student in MSU, we went to the department head and said, can we just not have, can we have you not have to sit through pornographic material to pass this class? What was the answer? No. This is the requirement for the class. And in some ways, it just really shouldn't surprise us, should it? No, it should sadden us. It should sadden us. It's a tearjerker in ways. It made me think, C.S. Lewis, when he compared sex before marriage to tasting and chewing food without being able to swallow and enjoy and digest it. I realize for some of you, this is really hard to hear. I recognize that. I realize this is hard for you to sit through because you've been there and back. And again, there's a heavy weight on you nearly every day because some of this. Can I just tell you about someone named Jesus? who can forgive and cleanse, restore, give you beauty for ashes. Don't just feel like throwing your life away because you've made mistakes in the past. God can redeem that. And you can draw a line today. You can start fresh today following Christ, making a decision to follow Him. Amen? So I know, I get this. Okay, I get this. I made poor decisions before marriage. But Christ is a wonderful Savior, a merciful Lord. God can separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. And you need to know that He can do that should you choose to follow Him and plead for His forgiveness. It would seem, wouldn't it, that monogamous, heterosexual, STD-free, guilt-free, healthy sex is God's prescribed method. 
the Bible is unashamedly that way. Does that seem narrow to you? Does that just seem tight? I just say it is and it's glorious. It's a wonderful thing. You don't need the pornography. You don't need the airbrushed people that aren't really the people. You don't need the fake and the glamour and the glob that the world is offering. God has a plan. He designed this and it's beautiful. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, he says this. I thought of this as I was just thinking about the magnitude of this versus the world today uh, or this week. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like ignorant children who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. And some of the Corinthians were probably just teaching that sex was just unspiritual. It just wasn't good. It wasn't holy. They'd been warped by their culture, and they said, this is just you. We need to stay away from this. And the Corinth people, they were getting saved, and they were swearing off of this. And by the way, we in the church universe, we haven't done ourselves any favors here in the long run. I don't think this is something we must talk about, we must understand. I wanted to read to you an article from Lark News about a couple named John and Darla Crocker from Topeka. I think you'll like it. It says, John and Darla Crocker, who dutifully abstained from sex during their 14-month courtship, have remained absent after, after marriage and plan to do so indefinitely. If it was holy before, it must be doubly holy afterwards, Darla says. They have now completed 25 months of marriage without any sexual contact, going about their normal lives and jobs and social calendar with no hint of relational strain. Sometimes after dinner, they'll kiss in the kitchen and start having bedroom thoughts, <laughs> Darla says, but they never fail to pull back. Darla breaks away to, cool, to, to spray cool, misted water on her face, and John eats a whole raw potato to take himself out of the mood. <laughs> they don't know when they'll finally break the pledge, and they feel no pressure after abstaining for so long before marriage. A few extra years is nothing. Of course, they don't lord it over any other couple who's decided to have sex after marriage, but for us, it's about staying faithful to the abstinence message and the holiness involved with that, says John, who seems unbothered. For us, true love waits and waits and waits <laughs> and waits. Now, you probably need to know that's not a real story. It's a fictitious story. See some of you guys out of the corner of my eye going, raw potato. I'm going to try that. <laughs> try anything. That's, and that was the attitude of the Corinth people. They were just saying, this is not a holy thing. We're going to do whatever we can to get out of the way of this. Again, Paul makes no distinction between male and female. One desire may be stronger than the other, but it's an opportunity for the sake of unity and love to regard others' desires more highly than your own. The point is that sex, uh, intimacy, and marriage, it's not an extra. It's not a cherry on top. This is the culmination of desire towards one another. It's the end in the intimacy chain. So for so many couples, for so many people I see in counsel, this is the beginning. It's like this is what they start with. No, this is the end. This is the beautiful end. 
Hebrews 13.4 says, Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. Listen, this is a regular, it should be a regular celebrated phenomenon for God. Do you remember what Pastor Rick Holland said a few weeks ago? He said, sex is God's wedding gift to you. Verse 4, for a wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is the one flesh relationship that the Bible talks about again and again. Brooke and I try not to use the word my or mine in marriage. Not just our bodies, but everything. Sweetheart, don't touch that. That's my book. No, we don't say that. We try to say, this is ours. We are now one flesh. One flesh in marriage. By the way, and I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, but verse 3, 4, 5 here, I think these pretty well do away with the idea of masturbation. Okay, look at verse 3. You're to derive sexual pleasure from one another, from each other. Verse 4, this says your bodies are not their own, they're not your own anymore. Verse 5 talks about the danger of abstinence from sex, which really uh, seems like it wouldn't be an issue if this was an option. Okay? I just want to put that out there because I, I've heard, even in a big event on campus this semester, where they said masturbation in marriage is okay. Now, I want to say it's not. Okay? And I want you to see that healthy, monogamous intimacy can happen inside a marriage. That's a good thing. Sex is not, however, a cure for all marital discord. I think this is important for us to understand. I used to just think, you know, things aren't going well, things are on the rocks. Well, you can just have more intimacy. Just, just turn it up. I heard this illustration. It really helped me. Marriage, or intimacy, it's not a thermostat. Okay, it's not where, you know, the marriage is getting a little bit cold, so I'm going to go crank it up a little bit. It's a barometer, okay? A meteorology device that measures atmospheric pressure. It measures, it gauges, it measures where the marriage is. So you can look at it, and often you can see the intimacy life, and you can see, is that marriage operating in a healthy manner? Okay. Sex can and should be initiated by both husband and wife. It says, do not deprive, look at verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement and for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You thought you'd, that we'd just left the one another series altogether, didn't you? It was off on a different playing field. This is our one another. All the previous one another's, they'd related on a broad scale, right, to the universal body of Christ and even more specifically to those of us in the local church, the church body. However, this one another refers to the husband and the wife. It's also, you might have noticed, the first one another that we've looked at it's expressed in the negative. It says, don't deprive one another. And the positive, uh, the, the positive side, it sounds kind of funny, but basically what Paul is saying is, have sex with one another. Don't deprive one another. Do engage in intimacy. Except, and he gives just a few exceptions here, by agreement and for a time. By agreement and for a time. And we see lots of examples of this in the the Old Testament where things were intense and there was deep mourning because of things that Israel had done on a national level. And so for a while there was just, there was no intimacy. There was a break. Okay? The reason is for prayer, for mourning, 
for fasting. So it's not like the, the wife taps the husband on the shoulder and says, and he's like, no, baby, I'm busy reading and praying. That's not the idea here. Okay, this is for a prolonged period of time by agreement. And notice what happens after that time is over. They get back together again. So it's both mutual and it's temporary. You see that? That's important. By the way, Satan is always just looking for ways to pervert things, isn't he? Ephesians 2 talks about the world, uh, the flesh, and the devil. And he's just warring against these, taking good things and twisting them. This verse warns that Satan wouldn't get a foothold. He wouldn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So it's important to come together again. Listen, summary, marital sex is God's only prescribed outlet for sexual enjoyment. It is enough. It's more than enough. He could have made us asexual creatures, couldn't he? Just cellular division, just and then boom, another one right there, right? That's not how he did it. I don't think cells go by the way, but you get the idea. God designed this. He made this as a gift to us. Look at verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all Whereas I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Classic word we see used for gift here over and over in the New Testament, charisma. This is a gift. It's a real gift. Singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. He says some have one gift, some have another gift. Singleness is a huge gift. It's a huge gift. I wouldn't go back for a minute, not for an instant. Okay, but when I was single, I really did what I wanted. I mean, within bounds, but pretty much I did what I wanted. If I wanted to stay out all night with the guys, I could do that. If I wanted to travel across the world and get Bibles into this closed country, I did that. Just on a whim. Boom. Did it. Singleness is a gift. It's unique. You can't always do that. That's important for you to recognize at a point in your life. Whether your singleness is temporary or it's permanent, use it. Use it. Enjoy it. It's a good gift. If you're wondering if you have the gift of singleness, there's not a perfect test for this. Okay, you might be thinking, man, is that me? Do I have the gift of singleness? I can't tell you some dogmatic way to test this, but if I talk about the gift of singleness and you taste a little bit of sourness in the back of your throat, you feel like you might throw up, you probably don't have the gift of singleness. <laughs> okay? If you're not excited about that idea, if you feel a little bit nauseous, you might not have the gift. I'm going to say that that's the minority, all right? Um, I'm all for marriage. I'm all for marriage, but I'm also all for singleness because the Bible is. The Bible says both of these are good gifts. Both of these are holy things. I'm so glad I'm married, but I'm for singleness too, and I'm so glad that there's single people in our church who just serve. They just serve. They use and see their singleness and they're just, boom, they're getting after it. If they need to stay up all night with someone, they just do it. It's neat. I love that. I appreciate that about some people. Beloved, this is God's realm. This is God's territory. This is God's word. Marriage is God's idea. And sexual intimacy, it's a beautiful thing. Cherish this. Learn from this. Learn what the Bible has to say about this. And let's conform our lives to this. That we would just be people set apart in this way. I know I say what if a lot, but what if this group of of 
however many are here tonight, what if we're just a group radically different in this area? Just for those who are in marriage and for some of you who will get married, just enjoying this and setting a good example in marriage. And for those who are single and may stay single, those of you who have the gift of singleness, what if you were just really setting the pace, just out in front in this way? Man, what a good example that would be, amen? I love what God's Word has to say about this. I hope you receive it. I hope you want to conform your life to this. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Remember, if you've gone too far, if you're sitting weighed down, heavy by sin tonight, heavy because of things that have gone on in your past, know Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Confess your sin before Him that you might be healed. That you might rejoice again in the gift of His forgiveness. And sinner, if you've never turned to Christ for the first time, turn to Him tonight. Follow Him. There's no greater joy than knowing and following Him that you might enjoy marriage, that you might enjoy these things in their fullness because in His presence is fullness of joy. You want to know what one of the fruits of following God is? Joy. You want real joy? Repent and follow Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I just want to thank You that Your Word is not silent, that it's not quiet on these things, but indeed it's uh, full and accurate. And I want to pray that Your Word would fall effectively on our ears tonight. God, You know how badly I don't want this to be a, a cause for stumbling or temptation. But Lord, with the world speaking into this so fully, would we as believers, would we have our mindset, would we have our pace set on this to obey You, to follow You, to follow You, to just look remarkably different than the world in this area. We praise You for Your Word. We praise You for the marvelous gift of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.